I've been involved in, uh, in the, the sports world for most of my life, either as an athlete or coaching. And, uh, and one of the phrases that you hear, and you hear this over and over again just everywhere you go, right? Pain is, pain is what? It, pain is weakness leaving the body, right? Yeah, yeah, it's super, super regular phrase. Pain is weakness leaving the body. Um, yeah, and you can, you can uh, think what you want about that phrase. I have plenty of mixed feelings about that phrase. I, the idea of like... The idea of thinking that the end goal is to get all weakness to leave the body is, is its own interesting thing, isn't it? That, that, that the end goal of life should be no weakness. And, and that's kind of where a phrase like that comes from. Like, if, if you're at your best, then all the weakness has, is gone from you. And I'm, I don't know how many of you have experienced weakness this past year or two years or pain. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say the percentages are high, like 100 probably. But I've been thinking about that a lot, a lot lately, and, and I've been thinking about it in light of the church. And I was thinking about that phrase late, actually late, very late last night. Um, and I thought, you know, well, what if, what if pain is weakness that's longing to actually have a voice in the body? Instead of pain that once, instead of pain being weakness that's leaving the body, what if, what if pain is weakness within a community saying, I need to be heard, I need to be seen, I need to be felt? And it's not something to get rid of, but something to learn from. Um, something that we need to have space for in order for life to flourish. I want to talk for two weeks, this week and next week, um, kind of about that because I think the New Testament gives this really fascinating look at weakness and humanness in the light, in light of the grace of Jesus. Um, but also because lately within our community, I've seen what I'm going to call uh, beautiful frailty. And, and what I mean by that is more and more, and I think it's often because we have no choice, but more and more I, I'm seeing and hearing stories of people coming to grips with real brokenness, with real struggle, uh, with the reality that things aren't exactly as they had envisioned in one way or another, um, and learning honesty with God in the midst of pain and with others and even finding renewal in it. Uh, so... In other words, I'm, I'm seeing many of you learning to be more human, but human with Christ alongside and within you. Uh, so I want to explore the, the idea of kind of beautiful frailty even further for uh, a couple weeks. I want to talk this week about being honest in our frailty, and then next week I want to talk about being renewed through our frailty or our, our weakness. Uh, I don't know how many of you listen to Christian radio, uh, I would encourage you to be cautious listening to the talking portions. Sometimes, if I'm really honest, I have mixed, I have mixed reviews of all of this stuff, uh, mixed feelings, even of the music, because uh, I think it can be uplifting, I think it can be encouraging, I think sometimes it, it can be um, maybe not as honest and authentic as, as life is. But, uh, but I, if you have or if you haven't, I don't know if you've heard this song so keep your messes and your wounds and your secrets safe familiar with you behind song? closed doors. It's, it's incredibly popular right now. But truth be told, truth be told, the truth is rarely told. I say I'm fine, yeah, I'm fine, oh, I'm fine, hey, I'm fine, but I'm not. 
super cynical for a second here. We, we eat this stuff up. This song is played like once every seven plays on Christian radio right now. And, and, and it's catchy, believe me. And, and I, I actually don't have a problem with it at all. Quite the opposite. I think the message is really good. But here's the thing. Christians, we eat this stuff up. We eat, the, we eat up the I'm broken, I need Jesus thing in generalities. But we really, really struggle with allowing what that means to be made specific in our lives, right? Um, we, we, we like songs about the fact that we are broken. But we really struggle moving from that to asking for prayer because you can't get a handle on your anger or sharing with a friend that you're starting to not be able to relax without alcohol or that your stress levels are making it impossible for you to experience joy or that your marriage is on the edge, right? Or that you've got some really big issues with American Christianity that are making it really hard for you to keep moving forward in your faith. Or whatever the case is, it's really hard. We want to say that, oh man, I just feel, I feel weak, feel kind of frail, you know, but to go one step further and let it become specific and let it become real is often a real struggle. So what I mean is that the American church is really broken in so many ways, and yet we love this song. (laughs) But we're not actually walking in the ways that allow us to change the reputation of being people that are incredibly honest and authentic in, in new ways. Our reputation is not so hot right now, and we've earned it in many, many, many ways. Uh, it's often easier to hide behind big ideas than to be honest about what weakness is, what frailty is, and, and begin to walk forward. Maybe it's because we're uncomfortable. Maybe it's because we feel ashamed. Maybe it's because we think that, well, I should just be able to pray away my, my challenges here. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's because it's very difficult for us to, to be vulnerable with other people, uh, especially if people have, tru- have proven to be untrustworthy. But the song, like the song says, being honest is actually the only way to fix it, so let's tell the truth. Uh, the thing is that the scriptures are desperately desiring us to be honest, desperately desiring us to be honest about our humanity. Uh, Jesus seems to understand the nature of all of this weakness and struggle and seems to want us to be a little bit more honest about it so that we can experience the fullness of, of life in the kingdom. Uh, in, in John 5, and this isn't actually the, I, I don't want to get too deep into the story, but there's this story about Jesus at, um, actually it's John 4. I don't know why I wrote down John 5 in my notes. Um, it's a Samaritan, Jesus is having this conversation with a Samaritan woman at, at a well. And there's a lot that goes into it, but I wanted to, to point out a couple things. It's the living water conversation, if you're familiar with the scriptures, where he says, can you, offer me, can you give me a drink? She says, we shouldn't really be talking because there's the Jew-Gentile thing, or there's the Jew-Samaritan thing, and then there's the man-woman thing. And anyways, he, he ends up chatting with her. It goes into this theological conversation, uh, which we find out later is her maybe skirting around some other issue. And so he says something like, hey, why don't you go get your husband and we can talk about it together. And she says, I don't have one. And he says, that's right. 
you've had five. The person that you're with right now is not your husband. By the way, how many of you immediately think that that's a moral issue of this woman? How many of you have always read it, right? Like she's a, <laughs> whatever the case might be. Um, as you dive more deeply into this, the idea that a woman would be divorced five times is almost unheard of. What's much more likely is that she's been widowed time and time again. Uh, so it's, it's just interesting where our assumptions come from. If a, if a woman had been divorced even twice, again, she had no power, so it would have been someone else divorcing her. She had no power to make a divorce. Um, but I, I say this just because of our assumptions when we read things, and specifically, we, we often, yeah, we often immediately assume especially in areas of relational brokenness, I think some, some possibly unfair things. But actually, whatever is true is not important because the, the important thing is that relationally, she has so much hurt and brokenness. It doesn't matter if she was the cause of it or if other people were the cause of it. And, and Jesus calls, calls it out. And, and he says, you know, and, and he says, I, I know this. <laughs> I know this about you. And she she's struggles with the, uh, the concept of it, but and eventually kind of comes back around to Jesus. But again, she kind of wants to, to not, deal with, not deal with that part of it. She wants to talk theological questions about worshiping on mountains and stuff like this. And he keeps bringing her back to truth. He says, you're going to be able to worship in truth with, with all that you are one day in the fullness when the Messiah comes and I'm him. But there's a couple of just interesting things about that. Number one is uh, seven is the number of perfection in the scriptures, number of completeness. And so there's been five men in her life, and then there's a sixth one that's in there, and Jesus is number seven. So, like, Jesus is the completeness that she's longing for. Uh, so, like, Jesus is the complete package, right? L- like, literally, um, in, this, in the Hebrew way of writing. But, uh, but he says, what you're longing for, I can actually meet. I, c- I can come, what, the pain that you've experienced, the hurt, doesn't matter how you got here. Can we just be clear and honest about this? It's okay. I know. You can be honest. So, it's just a little example of one time where Jesus is like, can we cut through some of this stuff and be honest about maybe some of the biggest things in your life that I can help heal, that I can help speak to. Uh, it happens over and over again. Jesus just wants honesty because we're already known by God, are we not? Psalm 139 is this fascinating, fascinating psalm. Um, and uh, can we toss it up? I don't know why we're having so many tech issues lately. Judah, can you hit that one more time for me? Thank, thank you. Uh, so at the end of Psalm 139, there's this phrase that the psalmist says, this little prayer, search me, O God, and know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. You've probably heard that before if you've been around for too long. But here's the interesting thing. Know my heart, God. He says, after an entire chapter, an entire paragraph of talking about how much God knows inside and out, everything he is. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord, is what he says earlier. You see, when I go out, you know my thoughts from afar, all this stuff. And then he says later, search me, God, and know my heart. But he's just proclaimed the entire time how God knows everything. So why say that? Why pray that? Why say, search my heart, God? Because the flip side is, you already know it, right? So here's what happens right before this. In the midst of talking about how God knows him inside and out and God's so wonderful and God's so great, um, he says this. Hit it, please. Thank you. This is right after all this poetic stuff, right before this final verse. He says, he, he, he gets distracted. 
by the fact that it, with God's love and goodness, there's also this, this kind of movement against it. And all of a sudden he says, do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred from them, for them. I count them as my enemies. And then he's like, ooh, maybe I need, I, I see this as the psalmist actually pausing and realizing that his heart needs to be set right again. He needs to be honest about where things are not right. Yes, God sees him, but I need to say up front, actually, God, you know me already, but I need to be honest with myself about my, my heart, and I need to lay it out before you one more time. When we say that God knows us, that's great, but that is not the same as us allowing ourselves to be changed and transformed. He says, wow, I have hatred in my heart, even if I think it's righteous hatred. Uh, God, lead me toward life again. I need to be honest with you. I need to put all of that out there. Over and over and over. We're just so uncomfortable admitting kind of our humanness and our weakness and our tendencies. Uh, the, the biblical witness in the New Testament is really clear, actually, in regards to weakness. Um, it's, just, it's, it's just not seen in the same light as we see it today in the U.S., as we look at it often. Uh, in, in Romans 14, Paul talks about people whose faith is weaker, and he says, hey, listen, folks, um, be gentle with them. Stop making it hard for them. They're family. Chill out. <laughs> stop, stop creating conflict. In 1 Corinthians 12, we're reminded that there are those within the body of Christ that are seen as weak, and they're indispensable. And you can in interpret that however you want, but he says, but Paul says they're to be treated with special honor and special care, the ones who are maybe most broken, the ones who are struggling the most, the ones that are having a hard time. And then when Paul experiences weakness and insecurities and struggles, he almost, he, well, he literally brags about it. He brags about how weak he is over and over and over again. It was just assumed that weakness and frailty in all sorts of ways is actually a part of the human experience and a part of discipleship. Too much impressiveness was actually a caution because it got in the way of what God could do. Too much capability was a problem. The scriptures assume that everyone needs to own their weakness and then move through it uh, with the weakness still being held. In uh, 1 Corinthians 2, um, here's what Paul says when he's kind of giving witness to this, this idea that weakness is to be embraced and not pushed away. When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I'd forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness. Let's not disconnect the, the previous sentence from there. I was going to forget everything except Jesus Christ who was crucified. Therefore, I came to you in weakness. Because Jesus saved the world through weakness, through strength that looked like weakness. So Paul says, that's going to be my approach. Giving of myself, not thrusting myself forward in my impressiveness. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message, my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, and Paul in his back pocket, he's like, I've got those if I need them, because I'm really impressive. At least I was, but all of that is junk now in my life, because Jesus has changed me, and that's not my priority anymore. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit, I did this so that you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. And again, the power of the Holy Spirit isn't, I'm going to work miracles. It's the power of the Holy Spirit to transform hearts, to reveal the kingdom to those who are open to it. 
there were moments that were miraculous and radical, but that's not what he's talking about here. He didn't earn them over by showing them signs and wonders. Paul won people over by showing them the beauty and the love and the grace and the sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's just beautiful. I didn't try to be impressive because what would that accomplish anyway? You might miss Jesus' goodness because you're so impressed with me. That'd be horrible, Paul says. That'd be horrible if you thought highly of me and forgot that Jesus was actually the one enabling a beautiful life. So this attitude and then the next few years of struggle and maturing for Paul <clears throat> would eventually lead him to penning these words in a later date in a letter to the Corinthians. Again, second letter to the Corinthians, years later, Paul is older and more mature. I don't think we ever give space for people in the Bible to actually keep growing, um, but they do. Peter, massive growth. Paul, massive growth. And it wasn't just the moment of conversion. It was throughout his entire life. So Paul's writing again, and here's what he says. Uh, for God, and now, now he's not just writing it to himself. He's writing instructions to the church. Um, he says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. This is the point I want you to check out, though. But we have this treasure. In jar so the treasure is the gift of God, the spirit of God, the hope of Jesus. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. This, this idea, <clears throat> this idea of calling jars of clay, and what he's talking about, he's talking about us at this point. He's talking about humans. Humans are jars of clay, but we have this treasure within us. Uh, it's really, really interesting to think about jars of clay, because a, a, a clay jar was um, a very common, very common vessel at the time to hold and store things. But clay jars were easily broken, right? We didn't have the metal age quite yet in the way, in the way that it would get developed. So you would carry water. You would uh, secure things in your house uh, for long-term keeping with jars of clay. But what would it take for a, a jar to break? Just getting bumped over, right? It's super fragile. Like you, you accidentally knock over a jar and it cracks. That's why the woman who, who anointed Jesus' feet, she cracks open breaks open a jar of perfume. You stored it, but it was easily breakable. You didn't have to throw it up against the wall. You could just knock it over. And anyone who's had young kids knows how anything in the clay porcelain world just breaks very, very easily by getting knocked over. That's why none of us have vases in our house. So, so anyways, oh, so here you go. Thank you, Judah. Um, so, so this is a picture of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, or the, not, not, this isn't a picture of the scrolls. This is a picture of the jars that held the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947 uh, in the Qumran Caves uh, in the West Bank. Okay, and, and here's why they're so important. Uh, they held over 800 documents or fragments of documents from the biblical era, and they, they constituted the earliest Hebrew version of the Bible that we have by 800 years. Okay? So when this discovery was made, they found an entire Old Testament, uh, fragments of the entire Old Testament, everything except for Esther. Um, nothing against Esther, I'm just trying to give you a history lesson. Um, in there, 
And, and so what they had is all of a sudden they got, a, and, it, and it was with all these other documents as well, cultural documents, they just got this, this glimpse of the ancient Hebrew culture and what mattered to them. It was a big deal, but here's the thing. They're dated from around 100 B.C. That's 2,100 years that those clay pots, those clay jars, were able to preserve the Word of God. This valuable thing. And, the, and they, were, they were hidden almost certainly during the final years of Paul's life. Not Paul wouldn't have been right there, but it was the same era. Okay, so here's why I say this. For Paul to use the idea of jars of clay to talk about who we are, he knows how brittle and breakable jars of clay are, but also he knows that they can hold incredibly valuable things and preserve them and carry them faithfully for a long time. So Paul is playing around with this image and saying, yes, we're weak, we're brittle, we're frail, you're broken. But can you go one up back to that, that scripture? But at the exact same time, the fact that you're broken, you also can hold this all-surpassing power and it doesn't even look like it's all about you when you do. Because when humans effectively express God's love, when we have been changed by Jesus, in humble ways, it doesn't usually look that impressive for us as people, but it has a profound impact on others in the name of Jesus. And so, so the beauty of being weak people and saying, I'm not going to run from my weakness, I'm not going to run from my struggles, I'm just going to continue to trust Jesus, is that actually Jesus' love and power and spirit comes through more purely, more visibly, when that's our posture than when our posture is, I'm not going to show my weakness, I'm not going to talk about my brokenness. So there's such incredible beauty there. What an image. And like I said, um, speaking of images, we have an image problem, right? Many people in the world believe that Christians aren't honest people. And when I say that, I mean they, the, the image. And it doesn't matter if you, in your head you want to say, well, we are, or we're trying to be, or whatever. You still need to know that there's an overarching view of many Christians that say that they're not authentic in their struggles, in the reality of their limited knowledge, um, and as an aside, in their genuine love for other people when it doesn't benefit them. So maybe more honesty with one another would, uh, would do our part in helping to break down that image problem. Maybe that's the first step. We've been talking about creating culture for a long time. Maybe it would get us looking a little more like the humble community that Jesus had in mind. If we started to say, okay, what does it look like for us to be more honest? To not have to hide because we're worried about what people are going to think if we say that this is a real struggle, that I have these big questions, whatever. Um, and when we grasp this whole idea that our hu in our humanness we are both frail and remarkable image bearers of God, we'll, found, we'll find newfound honesty and we'll find newfound vulnerability in our relationships. So living with humble honesty is absolutely freeing to us and God will use it to free others as well. When we live with honesty at our core about our brokenness, about our need, about our struggles, um, it opens us up to surprising compassion. There's something else I'm aware of at LifePath and, and that is uh, sometimes I hear people who are walking through the deconstruction phase. Remember last week we talked about order, disorder, and reorder through the podcast that we listened to, that every, every journey of maturing faith and belief usually goes through some sense of chaos and questioning, and you can either get derailed there or you can keep moving through it and discover a deeper, more pure, and beautiful faith. Um, 
But sometimes when people are in that deconstruction phase within our church, um, it's, they feel like it's a, a struggle to share because they feel like questioning things puts them on the outside of faith. Questioning um, the assumptions that they grew up with or their struggle with what they're seeing in, at, at large in the world for any number of, of, of ways. But here's the thing. When you share honestly about your faith, I, I really believe this, uh, you'll learn that this community is built around Jesus, not about airtight certainty of every element of faith. And, uh, and you might find that there's so many others in various places in their discipleship journey that can relate to you and even offer a lot of encouragement. Not to fix you, but just to help you realize that you're not alone. And Jesus welcomes this. Um, yeah. But instead, we often struggle in silence and we don't feel like others are safe to entrust our, our struggles with. So the only way to get through that is to be committed, friends, to creating a Jesus society where we can share without judgment where faith is hard. We can share where real life is complicated. And we can affirm one another that it's okay because we're jars of clay. <laughs> and, uh, and even when we're cracked, we're capable of holding extraordinary treasure. So, um, when... Truth is rarely told, right? When we struggle with honesty, it points back to a lack of trust, okay? Usually it points to a lack of trust. So here are some opportunities for growth, friends. Um, the first one is to acknowledge, like the psalmist does, just a deeper honesty with God and with yourself. Often when we admit things to God, vocally, actually, what we're doing is we're, we're finally admitting it to ourselves so that God can change us in it. Because we know that God knows. We talked about that already, right? So when we say, I need, Lord, I need to tell you about this. I need to just lay this out here. It's us learning to be honest with ourselves in front of God because God's like, yeah, I know. So, so it's an opportunity for us to grow in owning, in owning this, um, owning our weaknesses, our struggles, our trauma, and letting God into those spaces so that we can be loved wholly as we are and experience grace. And for some of you, here we go, deeper honesty involves trusting others. And that's a big step, and, uh, and I know that there's a lot of pain associated with that. And so here's what I need to say on the flip side. For others of you, as a community, we need to really carefully watch statements that create walls and shut down conversations. We need to really, really, really watch this, friends. Um, if, if you act like something is just so obvious, so obvious, that when someone else wants to wrestle with that, they don't feel like they can around you. Okay? They can't ask those questions. They can't say, ah, I'm not sure where I'm at on that. It's just a struggle. They don't want to do that with you because you just kind of shut down the conversation. If you say something about those people, those people, and the person that is near you has some sort of an affinity or connection with whatever those people are, you no longer have created space for honest conversation. Um, it's not going to be easy for them to be honest with you. So we need to learn deeper grace in those areas. We have so much opportunity to create something beautiful, but we have to grow in the area of making space for one another. But it's not about us, end of the day. It's not about us. It's about the fact that Jesus comes to us in our weakness and offers rescue. Um, so I want to wrap up here with a, uh, a reminder of the Second Corinthians passage that you just saw, but in a slightly different translation. Um, so let's, here's the message's paraphrase. And I, I really like what Eugene Peterson, and he worked directly from the Hebrew. He just did thought for thought versus word for word. 
um, or the Greek in this case. Uh, if you only look at us, this is Paul writing again, if you only look at us, you might well miss the brightness. <laughs> We're talking about the, having the light of God. We carry this precious message around in the unadorned clay pots of our ordinary lives. That's to prevent anyone from confusing God's incomparable power with us. <laughs> As it is, there's not much chance of that. You know, what, you know for yourselves that we're not much to look at. We've been surrounded and battered by troubles, but we're not demoralized. We're not sure what to do, but we know God knows what to do. What a phrase. Oh, I love that translation. We're not sure what to do, but we know God knows what to do. <laughs> We've been spiritually terrorized, but God hasn't left our side. We've been thrown down, but we haven't been broken. This whole idea is like, yeah, friends, we're beat up. But, and next week we're going to talk about what it means to be outwardly wasting away, yet inwardly our spirits are being renewed, which is what he says in the next paragraph. It's a fascinating concept, so we're going to dive into that next week. But this week, I just want you to, to see uh, the beautiful image and the beautiful vision of humility, frailty, and power and faith in what God can do through us. Um, we are jars of clay, but jars of clay that, that contain great treasure. And our humanness is something embraced by God, not something that stops the Spirit of God from being able to work through us or burst through our lives. Um, so if we honestly learn to trust Jesus and to trust one another, again, in new ways, new layers, it'll open the door to so many beautiful things within our church, within our world. I know these might feel like pretty, pretty big steps in some ways. Um, so let's pray, and then we're going to dialogue just a bit. We've got a, a little bit of time, so we'll throw the catch box around, and I'll throw some questions up on the screen. Lord, we are, uh, we're trying to be honest here. We are doing our best to be honest with you, with ourselves, to create the kind of church that is so humble and trusts you, Lord, um, that it reflects your spirit of love and unity and gentleness and obedience. But we can't do that alone, uh, and we don't really want to try, God. So we pray that you come and you meet us in these areas that you help us be honest about our weaknesses and when we feel frail and that within this community we could create a culture lord where that is welcomed without shame so that we can continue to grow more like like your image and not feel like we have to do it alone help us in this jesus uh we have nowhere to go but you Amen.